0: I'm Katie Tregiddon and this is Circular, a podcast exploring the intersections of craft, design and sustainability. Join me as I talk to the thinkers, doers and makers of the circular economy. These are the people who are challenging the linear take make waste model of production and consumption and working towards something better. In this series, we're talking about repair. I think that mending repair is primarily important for
1: uh, people who who experience different marginalizations and different intersections of marginalizations. So particularly people in poverty, people who are black, people of color, people who are trans, people who are immigrants. Um, it's those people who get excluded from capitalism, who get mm. excluded from spending huge amounts of money on rent, on on housing, on food, and who you know, have to work huge numbers of hours just, just to get by. And so when you're, when you're struggling just to feed yourself, you have to be able to fix your things.
0: Justin South is a 32-year-old bisexual fashion student. Four years ago, Justin went into rehab for drug and alcohol addiction, and he's been in recovery ever since. During that time he's worked with several charities that help recovering addicts. He's learned beekeeping with Kairos Community Trust, woodworking and carpentry with Restoration Station who are part of Spitalfield's Crypt Trust and sewing along with psychology skills at Foundation for Change. Having discovered a passion for sewing, Justin is now a first year fashion pattern cutting student at London College of Fashion. He's also a drag queen by the name of Vania, and has performed all over London where his work explores themes of queer identity and mental health issues. In recovery Justin found he wants to offer help to other queer people and so he volunteers with Book 28, a queer library housed within one of Britain's only LGBTQ homeless shelters and he's recently become the LGBTQ students officer for the University of Arts London. I would like to start right at the beginning and ask you a little bit about your childhood and how mending and repair showed up in your early life.
1: In my early life, I think that um, mending and repair probably didn't play a huge role. Uh, I grew up quite middle class, Um, both my parents worked full time, so we were able to afford reasonably nice stuff. And so I didn't have, I suppose I didn't have a whole massive need to to learn how to repair things. Uh, I was in the Cubs, so I'm pretty sure I had a sewing badge during that, but I don't particularly remember it. Um, I always thought of myself as being a bit more academic rather than into, into practical things, which is something that ended up completely changing as I got older.
0: It's interesting, isn't it? I think we have these things. And I think certainly I went to a grammar school, so it was very much, you know, you are in the academic box. And there was this sense that more creative, more hands on subjects were somehow for less intelligent people, which is just nonsense, you know, having also found myself in this industry. But I think there's a real hierarchy sometimes between different things we enjoy or the different things we we like to do and I, I think it's interesting that you mentioned that you're from quite a middle class background and therefore mending and repair didn't necessarily come up and I think that's an it's another thing that is interestingly often associated with poverty you know we mend something because we can't afford to buy a new one rather than because we love that thing and we just want to keep it in our lives you know so I I think there's some interesting there's some interesting stuff that I plan to dig into throughout this uh, this podcast but you really became involved in repair and and restoration specifically at your time at restoration station which was where we first met could you tell me a little bit about firstly what restoration station is what they do and how you came to be involved with them
1: yeah absolutely so restoration station is a part of spitalfields crypt trust um, which is a charity that helps recovering addicts and people who are experiencing homelessness um, get housing, recover, stay recovered. Uh, they're, they're a really really great charity and in Shoreditch they have a um, they have a rehab, a residential rehab and below the rehab is a shop area and an area where they used to run classes um, or they still run classes even and there's also a restoration station which is part of part of the charity but also its own independent thing and restoration station is a woodwork and carpentry repair furniture repair shop so people bring in things that they want repaired that they want fixed and people who are in recovery people who are living in the rehab above the shop um People like me so i wasn't living in the rehab but i would came there as a recovering addict um get taught the skills of how to how to repair things how to even just how to interact with customers that was a big mm. part of it for me um so restorationization is a social enterprise uh and it relies on completely on donations on even on things that we would find in the streets that we would we would drag in, fix up, and then sell on, and all the profits would go back into the charity.
0: It's amazing how much furniture is just dumped on the streets of London, isn't it?
1: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Particularly, um, particularly in East London, you, you wander around, and there's always like, you know, a, a sofa hanging about, or a table, or desk, chest of drawers, uh, and if you're willing to put in a little bit of um, a little, a little bit of work in carrying things back you can you can absolutely get a tre- treasure trove of items
0: and what were some of your favorite things to restore can you think of some particular pieces or some particular types of furniture that you particularly enjoyed working on
1: so the uh, manager of restoration station a guy named bernard he was particularly fond of uh, g-plan furniture and mm. um, so stuff that was you know very classic but Uh, very very solidly made but not too intricate not too um, not too worked on stuff that could take a bit of a bit of hammering and a bit of screwing Mm. Uh, and so we would often have really beautiful tables uh, and also um, really beautiful kind of side tables so things like ironically things like drinks cabinets (laughs) were were quite popular and these really beautiful items that often because they were because they'd been built so well in the first place, didn't actually need that much work. And it was often quite surprising to see that that people wouldn't want them anymore mm.
2: but,
1: um, or thought that they were broken beyond repair when really they just needed a little bit of a little bit of sanding, maybe a little bit of gluing in the corners. Others were were perfectly fine,
0: Mm. and and how did people? Because sometimes you were donated furniture, and then you would restore it and sell it. But sometimes people brought in their own furniture to be restored. And how did people react when they saw this sort of lost and broken item restored to its former glory? I think people were really, really surprised,
1: and almost in a in a way that was unbelievable that that they couldn't even envisage this this piece coming back to coming back to life and being you get so used to when something is broken to it being always that way Mm. Um, and for them to see it go from simply being broken to being fixed without any of the in-between process I think people got a real kind of shock and and surprise and enjoyment out of how different their, their pieces of furniture or whatever it is they'd brought in looked.
0: Mm. And I think it's quite a it's quite a rare and special thing now isn't it often once something's broken it just gets thrown away and, and that's the end of its life so to see it sort of heading that way but then being pulled back and, and becoming something that's valuable again I guess must have been quite quite magical for those people because that object obviously meant something to them otherwise they wouldn't have gone to the effort of bringing it into you
1: and I think there was also you know a bit of a metaphor for the people who came and volunteered and learned things in restoration station from going from a life on drugs and alcohol often people were street homeless um Mm. thinking that you know, they, they were broken or that there was something inside them that was fundamentally broken. And it just took a little bit of gentle work, a little bit of kindness um, for people to to realise that they weren't and they could be OK. Um, and so, it was really nice seeing that parallel between, between items of furniture and also people kind of coming mm. back to life.
0: Yeah, I think that's a really, a really beautiful metaphor, actually, that the restoration station is not only arming you with the skills to sort of go out into the world and rebuild your life, but also this every day, all day, every day, this beautiful metaphor about how something broken can be can be valuable again. You've also talked to me before about kind of learning that it was OK to make mistakes in that kind of restoration process. Could you talk a little bit about the role that that played in your recovery as well?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um... So when so I was simply a volunteer at restoration station as with everyone who worked there was a volunteer. And so there was not quite so much this expectation of such a high standard of work. Uh, had we all been professional carpenters and masters of woodwork, then A, the people who came to get their furniture fixed would have paid that premium. For mm-hmm. the the experience and the work that had gone in, um, but B there would have been this expectation that everything should be perfect, and it was learning that it's okay to to mess things up and it's not the end of the world, and in recovery that's uh, that's a really important lesson to learn that um, you will have missteps and you will have mistakes and you will things will go wrong but it doesn't have to be the end of the world you don't have to go back to the life that you were leading you don't have to go back to drinking drugs um, you can you can you can repair or you can patch it up or sometimes you just you know you learn to live with with something that went wrong uh, mm. and that's that can be a really difficult lesson to learn in the same way that Occasionally, I can remember messing things up in the shop. I remember once um, spending ages sanding down this huge, beautiful table, and then when it came to putting the legs back on the underneath, I screwed right through the top of the table and put a screw right through oh, this, no. this enormous dining table, and I, I felt awful about it. Um I remember turning to turning to the boss and saying, "Yeah, I'm so sorry. I've, I've, I've messed this up i like drilled right through it um and you said oh well never mind it's uh it's part of the history of the piece now uh and it was such a relief to be to be <laughs> to be told that it's
0: it's fine yeah
1: it's it happens
0: and I love the idea that that just becomes part of that object story and I think that's, you know, that's another lovely metaphor, isn't it? That we, we've all made mistakes in our lives and, and they just become part of our stories and we sort of, we move on and, and, and learn from them hopefully and, and carry on. So yeah, I think that's a, another really powerful metaphor. Then you got involved with Foundation for Change. Tell me a little bit about them because I'm not familiar with them at all. So Foundation for Change
1: are a charity that also sort of helps um, recovering addicts to gain psychology skills that will help them to help themselves. Um, They established with the idea that giving people a basic understanding of psychology of what might be happening in their lives and teaching them would mean that they could then apply these things to themselves rather rather than just spending six months in therapy looking at your problems if you learn some of the some of the background theories and the ideas behind Mm. why you might do these things why you might have turned out the way you have uh, it can help you to 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 improve yourself and help you to understand yourself better Um, and foundations changes office is right next to restoration station which is how i how I first got involved in, with them. And I took one of their Psychology for Change courses, which lasted about four months, I believe, and took a certificate at the end. And then I completed this course. And then later on, one of the people who worked for Foundation for Change, a woman named Bex, started to run a Sewing for Change course because she, is, she used to be a seamstress, which was. Uh, teaching a small group of people there was only three of us when I I took part in it learning how to sew learning how to make things learning how to um, repair things as well and I realized that I absolutely loved it really I really enjoyed it it was just such a really positive space
0: trying a few different ways of supporting the podcast this time around. So we'll be back after a short break. And thank you so much to everybody who helped to make this season happen. If you're a designer maker, here's what I want you to know. None of this is your fault. Climate change, ocean acidification, falling biodiversity levels, none of it. But you do get to be part of the solution. And the best part, that gets to be creative, collaborative, and filled with wide-eyed curiosity. Remember that? Visit katietrigiddon.com forward slash membership and leave your eco guilt at the door. Find a community of fellow travellers, clear, actionable steps you can take today and all the support you need to join the circular economy. Visit katietrigiddon.com forward slash membership. I'll see you there. If you've never heard of Sugru.com, then you're in for a treat. It's the online repair shop for people looking to fix everything from clothes and homewares to kitchen appliances and charging cables, pick up some Sugru moldable glue along with other innovative products. Fixing is good; it's good for us and good for the planet. It's funny, isn't it, how sometimes you know there's just luck that we we happen across this thing that that defines our life. Because you're now studying fashion pattern cutting uh, at London College of Fashion. So tell me how you went from this tiny little sewing group to a degree. Yeah, so I
1: when I had finished doing um uh, doing the sewing course, I found that I'd really loved it and um me and the other people on the course have stayed in touch and we have regular regular chats and we have little like what we call stitch and bitch sessions. <laughs> <laughs> which has become much much more about the bitch than the stitch.
0: Lately. They always do, don't they? <laughs> <laughs>
1: And it was quite last minute that I realized that I wanted something more structured in my life. Um, I'd been working in restoration station. I'd had this sewing class that had been uh, a few days a week and when that when that course finished, um I realized that I needed i don't know i wanted I wanted something more long term I wanted to have something to look forward to and work at for a long time and decided to apply for a fashion degree and so I applied to a few different universities uh, across London, spent some frantic time trying to put together a portfolio which included a huge amount of work that I'd done at Restoration Station actually to kind of demonstrate that I knew how to plan ideas and put things together and one of the places that I got sceptic to was the London College of Fashion which is where I'm now studying.
0: Fantastic congratulations Um, and you're in your first year is that right?
1: Yes that's correct.
0: What role does mending and repair play if any in in the curriculum so far?
1: So in my for me in my first year uh, we've learned a lot of the basics of uh, pattern cutting, uh, and it's been extremely fast paced, which I've really enjoyed actually It's been very much all hands on deck and i'd say that uh, I'd say that the role of repairing comes in to having to learn the basics of of how something works, so we've been learning how to put together uh, a bodice or a skirt. For a dress, um, and how to start with the original bodice piece, which would be for a certain size, and how you can slowly add fabric or take away fabric to shape it as you want. And so, from from coming from that understanding of the basics, is where we can then move on to creating our own ideas, Uh, and I think as the As the course progresses as so I go into my second and third year, I think that repairing and recycling is going to play a huge part in my course there was when I was applying, there was a huge emphasis on how the future of fashion is going to have to change um, because it's just it creates you know, a huge amount of waste it creates a huge amount of of human rights issues
2: mm.
1: around the world and it's something that in its current form is it's just not sustainable
0: mm. that that's really good to hear one of the one of the people i interviewed for my most recent book wasted started a fashion degree probably 5 or 10 years ago now and and started raising issues of sustainability and was told that fashion is inherently unsustainable so you needn't bother <laughs> So I'm glad to hear things are changing. Um, I'm interested in the the stuff you're doing outside of sort of extracurricular activities as well. So you're the part-time LGBTQ students officer for the University of the Arts London, and you also volunteer for Book 28, which is a library specializing in queer literature housed in the outside project. How does all of this knit together? How do some of the lessons you learn about repair at Restoration Station, your time with the Foundation for Change. How have all of these things led you to this work, sort of being an advocate for the LGBTQ community?
1: While I during my time at Restoration Station, uh, I went from being the very shy newcomer who who didn't really know much about woodwork and everything. I approached. I waited for for my boss to come along and say, "Yeah, that's that's the right way to do it," and I had to check with everything and as time went on and as I worked there for several years, um I felt myself kind of grow in confidence and become the person who would who would say to other people, who would say to newer people working there, yep, you can do it like this. Yep, that's fine. You you know, you know what you're doing. And it was really nice to to progress to kind of be the person who other people were once for me to be the kind of person who helped other people and to be the kind of person that I wish and I was fortunate enough to meet. And it was during my time there that I learned about the Outside Project, which is one of the only LGBT plus homeless shelters in the entire country. Right. Um, And it it was so nice to hear about a place where LGBT plus people could go and feel safe mm. um, and so I wanted to get involved in in helping some of the people who who lived there who found themselves having to live there um, and after a bit of i did some fundraising for them, I did a bungee jump and raised over five hundred pounds for them. Wow was which is, just which is amazing fun and and then I later learned that there was a uh an organization called book twenty eight who was setting up a queer library inside the outside project uh, and I was at school during section twenty eight when uh, it was illegal to talk about homosexuality um, and I know and it took me a long time to realize the the effects that that had had on me and still has mm. on me and so i was I was very keen to get involved and try and Again, try and you know create something that I wish had existed when I was growing up. there was no There was no access to queer literature when I was at school there was There was even no one to talk to about it. A mm. um, person behind book twenty eight, his name is Isidore, is uh, doing a master's in uh, library studies, and so part of his master's is setting up this library. Wow, and we recently opened up for donations to kind of improve the space and get all the books we need. And our hope is to one day create a a lending service where we can just send out books to people around the country, and also do consultancy work for people and say, you know, this is this is the kind of thing that you could do to make your space more inclusive.
0: Mm, I think that's really important. And I think, I think it's really interesting to hear. Obviously, this is a podcast primarily about sustainability and the circular economy, but I think it's really interesting to hear the many, many ways in which society needs mending, you know, and needs repairing and, and the, the lessons that we can take from mending a piece of furniture and, and apply them to mending, you know, accessibility to books and, and education and, and all of those sorts of things. So, I, I that's a really powerful perspective. Thank you. Um, why do you think mending and repair is so important from a sustainability perspective, though? I think that
1: mending and repair is primarily important for uh,
0: people who who
1: experience different marginalizations and different intersections of marginalizations. So particularly people in poverty, people who are black, people of colour, people who are trans, people who are immigrants. Um, it's those people who get excluded from capitalism who get excluded mm. from spending huge amounts of money on rent on on housing on food and who you know have to work huge numbers of hours just just to get by and so when you're when you're struggling just to feed yourself you have to be able to fix your things mm. you know if your if your shoes break if your if your cupboard breaks if if you can't afford to to get something new and so being able to to repair something yourself not only gives gives your your things longevity it helps helps you to afford the things that you really need and I also think it can bring a huge sense of satisfaction
0: yeah Um, and I, I think there's a sense of personal agency isn't there when you can fix something for yourself rather than having to ask for help or you know go somewhere else if if you've got the skills just to to mend that thing and get on with your day and and as you say spend the money you would have had to spend replacing it on on more important things whatever it is you need Um, and I think I think it's really useful that that you've brought up all those intersections because I think environmentalism is absolutely intersectional with racism and sexism and transphobia and homophobia and all of those things you know there are so many sections of society that are being marginalized you know excluded from capitalism but also excluded from the environmental debate Um, and so I think it's really important that when we're looking at solutions they need to be solutions that work for everybody right you know I think so much of environmentalism is sort of only really works if you're middle class um, and that that's never going to be the solution, right? There's a there's a wonderful quote in a book called All We Can Save, which is an anthology of uh, women writers about the environment, and it says to change everything we need everybody. And I just think that's a, it's such a simple way of saying like there's no point just a tiny segment of society working on this. You know, it's it's got to be applicable to everybody. So thank you for bringing that up. Yeah, I'd say that
1: um, fixing things yourself does does bring a huge amount of personal satisfaction, but it can also bring huge amount of community um Mm. so as my in my role as lgbtq students officer for university arts london at the moment it's lgbt plus history month and so i've been helping to organize a few different workshops for lgbt plus students at the university i have one that's coming up this week with foundation for change as it happens That's going to be talking about queer identity and healing um and have another that's a makeup social and like a poetry and performance workshop and so these these ideas of of repair and restoration i think is not just limited to the things that you own it can be also yourself Mm. and having having an lgbt plus community um it creates this space where you can be accepted and you can you can air your your brokenness as it were and find within that community a way to to heal
0: Mm, yeah I think that's really important do you think do you think attitudes are changing towards mending and repair you know we talked at the beginning about how it was perhaps something that was associated with poverty um you know it's almost becoming trendy is that is that helpful do you think or do you think that's perhaps a little bit dangerous
1: I think that it is helpful. Ultimately, that um, more and more people are getting into restoration, are getting into repairing. But I think it will go through a phase of being co-adopted by people who do want to make money, mm. um, rather than people who do it from necessity. Mm. There will be an element of a fashion, as it were, that comes with with having things that look broken or look you know even the the trend of kind of ripped jeans it becomes a fashion statement mm. rather than simply you cannot afford to buy a new pair of jeans and it it can lend an air of of accessibility to these to these areas to particularly where it creates demand for people who want to know how to do this mm. uh, Um, For example, we often would have people come into restoration station asking if we if we ran classes for people who wanted to learn how to restore things. So I think. Yeah, I ultimately think it will be a good thing. Mm.
0: And and what do you think the future holds for mending and repair?
2: So I think
1: for the future of mending and repair, there's um, there's been a lot of movement around the right to repair, particularly when it comes to electronic goods. Mm. So in in the EU, in America, there've been some uh, recent news stories about people who want the right to repair their electronic equipment, um, and there's one big. A company that is particularly guilty of of making its things obsolete uh, after a few years, when in reality they could be fixed quite mm. easily.
0: Well, and often, you know, you you render the the warranty invalid by attempting to repair these things, don't you? So it's it's not only that we're not encouraged to repair them, but we're actually prevented from repairing them, right?
1: Yeah, absolutely. And so I think as technology progresses. Um, becomes more and more accessible it's going to become easier for the everyday person who doesn't have access to huge fancy equipment to repair their things quite easily um mm-hmm. it's the rise of things like 3d printing
2: mm-hmm.
1: where it's now possible that people can buy their own 3d printers and have them at home you can you can quite easily make the item that you need
2: mm-hmm.
1: and as that technology progresses and it becomes cheaper and more accessible, I think that it's going to become more prevalent for people to to keep things and just keep fixing them and adding bits and customizing them to how they want them very specifically to work.
0: Mm let's hope so uh yeah yeah i really hope it it goes that way i think it it certainly needs to from a sustainability point of view so thank you so much for speaking to me justin it's been it's been a a true privilege and an honor to get such a i think just a meaningful perspective on on some of this stuff that goes beyond the sort of the functional repairs so I'm, i'm very grateful to you thank you thank you very much it was lovely to speak to you again If you enjoyed this episode, can I ask you to leave a review and perhaps even hit subscribe? I'll be honest, I don't really understand how the algorithm works, but I'm told those two actions really help other people to find the podcast. So that would be amazing. Thank you. You can find me on Instagram at katietrgiven.1. You can subscribe to my email newsletter via a link in the show notes. And if you're a designer maker, you should really join my free Facebook group, Making Design Circular. See you there. This episode was produced by Sasha Huff. So thank you to Sasha, to October Communications for marketing and moral support, to Sugru for their sponsorship, and to you for joining me. You've been listening to Circular with Katie Tregidden.